HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Moby, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. The following program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. The more you know about our meat, the better. That's the bottom line at Whole Foods Market. Our standards require no added hormones and no antibiotics, ever. Our partnerships with farmers and ranchers allow us to offer the highest quality local and organic choices. And our newest program, the Global Animal Partnership's five-step animal welfare rating, sets unprecedented standards in the industry for beef, pork, and chicken. Standards you can see, labeled, when you walk into our stores. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com for more information on the five-step rating. Because, hey, the more you know, the better. Okay, it's Thursday at 1 o'clock and you're tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn on this beautiful Brooklyn day. Uh, if you're in the area, definitely get down here and enjoy a pizza in the backyard. Uh, it's gorgeous out. Um, you're listening to The Farm Report. This is Aaron Fairbanks and I am on the line with Jessica Zim. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Aaron. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So we are talking about New York State dairy today. And I'm One of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, actually. Why don't you um, give us a little bit of your background and what, what qualifies you to be our go-to person with dairy questions? Sure, Erin. It's great to be on the show, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm I'm uh, from a dairy farm originally. Grew up on a dairy farm. My entire family are are dairy farmers, and uh, I chose not to be one because I tend to like to talk to people a little bit more than talking to cows. However, um, I really have a lot of respect for this industry, and in fact, married a dairy farmer. So once it's in your blood, it, it's there. <laughs> um, but it, it's a really fabulous industry to be involved in, and um, you know, I've learned a lot. Um, from being involved in the dairy industry, and we have such a tremendous amount and high-quality uh, farmers that are out there producing a fresh, wholesome product for us every day, and, um, and that's milk. Awesome. Well, let's tuck into that a little bit more in just a second. So you grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, what kind? Did you raise a particular breed of cows? What was the size? Kind of what, what did your farm look like? 
Sure. I grew up on a dairy farm in uh, in Rensselaer County, right over on the Massachusetts border, where my dad, uh, he still milks 85 to 100 Jersey cows. Those are the little brown cows, and uh, they don't produce as much milk, but their milk is super rich in butterfat and protein, and it's um, in particularly used to make dairy products because you can make a lot more cheese um, out of uh, 100 pounds of milk from a Jersey cow than you can a Holstein cow. Holsteins, of course, are those black and white cows, and they produce the most amount of milk, but their milk also does not have the components, the protein and butter fat um, that our Jersey cows do. So I really have a love for those little brown cows. Oh, and what about, uh, what about your husband's farm? Tell us a little bit about that. My husband's farm um, started out very similar to the farm that I grew up on, uh, milking 80 cows, a small farm. It was just his dad uh, raising his family. But um, unlike our family, my husband's family, uh, they had three boys. And all three boys went to school, went to college at Cornell University, um, and majored in dairy science. And they all came back to the farm. So now um, that farm has grown over the years from 85 cows uh, to now they milk around 500 cows. Um, but there are four family members and their, their spouses and their children that all um, are dependent on that farm. And that's up in Washington County um, where they also raise all the crops that go in to uh, feed those animals. Okay, so let, let's, let's break it down a little bit. Farm, farm size, you know, so the farm you grew up on was, you know, 80 to 100 cows. Your, your husband's farm is milking 500 right now. What is kind of the normal size of a, of a dairy farm in New York State? The average farm size in New York State is roughly around 100 to 125 cows. Um, and when you talk about dairy production on a national level, that's a very small farm. Um, but it's, it's the t- traditional size that we see here in New York. We tend to have smaller farms in New York State because New York State has curves. It has uh, rivers and creeks and valleys and mountains and um, all sorts of things that kind of limit um, the the size of our farms. Now, when you get out into the western part of the state, we certainly do have some of those larger farms, um, some farms that ha- that milk maybe even a thousand to two thousand cows. Okay. However, one interesting fact about New York dairy farms is that ninety nine percent of our dairy farms in in New York State are family owned. And I would say probably close to the same percentage of those at some point started out probably around 50 to 75 cows. Same kind of scenario. However, farms have grown over the years um, to accommodate additional family members coming back to the farm and to um, take advantage of the economies of scale. Okay. So, yeah, how about that? If I, you know, decided that I really love milk and have a passion for cows and wanted to move upstate and start a dairy farm, I mean, what kind of what kind of equipment costs, what kind of startup costs, what am I really looking at? I mean, what is the reason that people kind of come back to the family farm and expand that versus maybe starting their own? Well, we've seen this in all in all sorts of industries where economies of scale um, certainly can help um, uh, with your bottom line and, and making sure that you're spreading those costs out by more units. Um, and so while I'm not a financial genius by any um, stretch and nor am I a business person, hence I'm not a farmer, my husband and my father are, um, 
there are uh, greater opportunities when you do start milking more cows. Um, and so there are tremendous costs associated with starting up a dairy farm, um, thinking about the infrastructure in the barns, but also the land that you need to acquire if you're going to grow your own feed, which also includes the tractors and the equipment. And, um, you know, all of this is all, the prices are all relative, but with dairy farms, the other major expense that you have to incur is a milking system, a milking parlor, um, which can be very costly as well. Um, but that is um, a lot of times why you see dairy farming stay in the family um, because it's very difficult for people to go out and just start a dairy farm um, from scratch um, when they have nothing uh, handed down to them. Sure, sure. It sounds like a, a lot of investment and like a lot of farming that we talk about on the show. It sounds like as a dairy farmer, you have to be good at a lot of things. Now, you mentioned um, growing your own feed. Is this is this kind of a, the typical approach for dairy farmers is that they they're not only raising the cows and, and handling the milking every day, but they're also, you know, out there planting crops for for the food for the animals as well? They they are doing it all, and um, one of the things that just amazes me about dairy farmers and my dad and husband in particular is that they really are a jack of all trades. Um, they are uh, cow people. They know how to take care of cows and know how to um, make them feel better and how to um, make them comfortable, um, giving them special stalls and formulating a special diet for them. Um, but they also uh, need to be agronomists and know about different soil types and know about seeds and germination and making sure, um, you know, how much fertilizer needs to be on fields and, and how to handle all the ins and outs that Mother Nature uh, provides us uh, during the growing season. But in addition to that, they're, they're also uh, mechanics to make sure equipment is, is running smoothly. Uh, they are uh, accountants and making sure that they can still pay their bills, which is definitely a struggle in the dairy industry. And uh, there's just a number of other things that they are on the side. They usually weld. They know electricity. They know, wow. <laughs> um, the, list is, the list is endless, but I think it's what makes the job so exciting and um, also rewarding. Yeah, and farmers. I, I will have to say, like that was like one of the things I found most surprising. Spending getting to spend a little time on dairy farms in the last two years is the amount of of paperwork. I mean, dairy is a pretty highly regulated industry, and it seems like you know I remember being in kind of the back office of the milking parlor, and there's binder after binder of um, you know checking in on the animals' feed, the vets, the milk quality, and and really kind of having to record like every step of the way. Uh, what you're doing on a dairy farm. Yeah, this isn't the same dairy farm that was back in the 1950s. Uh, dairy farms today are, are very um, professional. They are businesses. As much as they are a way of life and, um, and, and a lot of times a family's culture and how they're raised and how they were raised as children and how they're raising their children today, um, they very much need to be run as a business. Um, milk is one of the most highly regulated food items um, in the United States, and that starts right from the ground that corn and hay is grown from um, all the way to the end product that's sitting in a supermarket shelf. Um, so there are so many things that are documented as well as regulated to ensure that we are doing the right thing by the land, um, which farmers are stewards of the land. And in New York State, it's more than a quarter of the state's total land mass is dedicated to farmland. So farmers take that very seriously. 
that is one of their greatest resources and assets is the land that they um, they live on. Um, but they also are caretakers of their animals and making sure that they are healthy and well cared for, as well as the product that those animals produce and making sure that that, too, is a safe, wholesome product throughout the entire chain. And so there are a, a number of requirements that farmers have are, um, have to follow, and um, it does. It requires a lot of paperwork. It requires a lot of computer time and making sure that there's records um, that are in place. It sounds like, you know, dairy farmers could probably use an extra couple hours in the day. <laughs> uh, dairy farmers could definitely use a couple extra hours in the day or a couple extra days in the week. Something, and this right? season is in particular, Erin, and as you know from your time um, on dairy farms as well, uh, right now is really go time. Uh, farmers are out in the fields uh, trying to plant corn. We are right around the corner from starting to take our first cutting of hay off of our fields, e- along with still milking the cows, feeding the cows, cleaning barns, and all those other day-to-day things that they do every day. But May is certainly the most busiest time of the year, and it's probably the one month that I see the least of my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so New York State is, is third in the nation for dairy production, is that right? We are the third largest dairy producing state in the nation, and we are so because we have really fantastic farm families that uh, are producing milk. But we also have an abundance of, uh, of great soils, and we have an abundance of uh, rainfall as well, which allows us to produce some really wonderful crops. And one of the unique things about New York dairy farmers, again, is that um, unlike other, some other states, um, our farmers... Um, produce crops that go into their cows, and um, in those cows, as everybody know, uh, produce uh, manure um, that they then use as a nutrient to refertilize the ground. So when we are growing crops, you know, we take some of those nutrients out of the crops to provide that go into corn and uh, into hay. Mm-hmm. And so it's a real circle of life that takes place on a dairy farm here in New York where we are uh, truly sustainable operators of the land. And can you say, so, you know, we talked a little bit about the average farm size. We talked a little bit about, like, what dairy farms look like in New York. What are, like, how does that compare with, with who's above us? Who are, who are the, who's number one and number two in dairy production in the country? Uh, California is the largest uh, milk-producing state in the nation, and they are by far. Um, They have, and it's a a relatively uh, newer industry. They have a much different farm structure out in California than we do here in New York. Um, They are still family operations, but they typically will be milking. um, I think their average farm size is around 1,000 cows, for example. Okay, um, so a lot bigger. is around 100. Uh, Wisconsin is the second largest uh, milk-producing state in the nation, and they um, they are very similar to here in New York, you know, as far as farm size, farm structure, um, and also growing their own crops for their animals. Um, what makes those two states very different from New York dairy farmers is that um, their milk uh, tr- traditionally goes into processed products. Here in New York, our farmers have to live in harmony with uh, 19 million consumers in their backyard. And so we have the markets for fluid milk consumption. Okay. Where in Wisconsin and California, while there are a lot of people that live in California, it's a, it's a huge state. And so a lot of their production goes into uh, processed products such as cheese and ice cream and yogurt. 
Okay, so so yeah, let's talk about like what are what are the the milk products? You know, you say fluid milk, and and that just means like when I go to the store, the gallon of milk I pull off the shelf, that's fluid milk. Exactly. Yes. Okay, and then other things, obviously cheese and and butter and, and different dairy products. So how do like when I'm when I'm going to the store, you know, down in New York City, how do I ensure that like the milk I'm buying comes from New York State? Well, there is, um, that's a great question, Erin, and there is a code at the top of um, every milk jug that you can look at, and it's usually where the date is. And on that, uh, on that date code, for example, is um, a number, and the number will be, um, it will signify which state um, it comes from. And so you want to look for, it's a two-digit state code, and the two-digit state code for New York is 36. 36. And usually it's followed by a three-digit code, which is the plant number. So you'll see the date and probably the time that that milk was uh, processed. And if it's New York, it'll be a 36-blank-blank-blank. Okay, awesome. Jessica, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about what's happening in New York State with milk after it leaves the cow. Great. Sounds good. Katie Kiefer, co-host of The Main Course. This Sunday on May 15th, we'll be welcoming Eric Asimov of The New York Times. He's the wine critic, and he writes the column The Poor. He also has a blog by the same name. We're excited to have Eric, and we also have uh, with us Lydia Shire, who, among her other restaurants in Boston, is one of the owners and the chef for Lock Ober's, one of the oldest restaurants in the United States that's in a nationally historic uh, building. So that should be a really fun show. I hope you'll tune in. All right, we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we are talking New York State Dairy with Jessica Zim. So, Jessica, before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, different products that come from milk, and kind of what what has been, you know, the there's seems like there's been some transitions in the New York, New York State uh, dairy industry. I know, you know, a hundred years or so ago, they were actually milking cows 
in the city and th- and that obviously is is no longer the case and you know we talked about farm size kind of growing in the state and do you do you see New York State dairy is is on the uptick or on the downtick what direction are we heading right now well, it's an exciting time to be in the dairy industry right now because this year, anyway, milk prices are a lot stronger than they have been in the past several years. The past several years, uh, dairy farmers have been receiving uh, very low prices for their product and in some instances not even covering their cost of production. Um, and milk pricing is has historically been a little bit of a roller coaster ride. It has uh, highs and lows, um, but certainly it, it evens out in the middle to allow farmers to make at least um, a, a modest living. Okay, so uh, and it, the prices are set. I mean, how how is that happening? Like, wh- you know, wh- who's deciding like what what milk goes for? The the pricing system um, for for milk is is a pretty complex uh, system. It's set by the federal government by USDA, and it takes into a lot of things into consideration. Um, mostly, what helps set the price of milk, the the biggest component, is the price of butter and cheese. And the reason why those are the real motivators for the price of milk is because those pri- those products have um, a, a shelf life. They are able to be stored, and so therefore it is really, I mean, any kind of excess milk can go into those products and be sold next week if if need be. Mm -hmm. Um, So that price uh, sets the price of milk and also supply and demand, how much milk is on the marketplace, how much milk is being produced right at the moment, how much is being consumed. And so USDA has a very complicated formula, and they they set the price of milk. It's also set on a federal level. And so what is going on in New York State as far as crops or feed that's being produced for cows um, or the climate that's um, here in New York could be vastly different than what it is in uh, the western part of the country. So it is pretty complicated, and and the one uh, very difficult thing for dairy farmers is that they are price takers. They have a price that's given to them, and um, that's the price they get. Unlike other industries that they can set their own price, um, this is a a difficult situation for farmers and um, a a topic that is constantly being worked on um, at the federal level. Yeah, and something um, you know we've touched on on the show before. It's not like you can turn a cow off and then turn it back on again. The milk is still coming once it's coming. Absolutely, and and it, it's very hard to to change midstream. If you know if the price goes down, you you cannot. There's not a lot that you can do. The the investments that you have in your property, your milking parlor, your equipment, your land those aren't going anywhere um, just because the price dipped. And so you are absolutely right. And cows, they produce milk every <laughs> single day, twice a day, sometimes three times a day that they need to be milked. So, But one way that farmers have been taking more control of this is by doing some processing and marketing themselves. And certainly you know that down in New York City where you are seeing a lot of interest in the buy local trend, uh, people wanting to know more about where their products are coming from. And we're seeing farmers respond to that, um, farmers uh, processing their own product and therefore setting their own price and allowing them to get more of the market share of the dollar that's being brought in versus sharing that with somebody that's transporting their milk, processing their milk, and marketing their milk for them. Well, let's talk about what those kind of two streams look like. So you have kind of the traditional model 
where the the farmer you know does the farming milks the cows and and they have someone who comes to pick up the milk and that's kind of the end of the line and then you have you know the the other end of it where the farmer is growing the crops, milking the cows, and then they're they're choosing to either bottle that milk as fluid milk or turn it into some other type of product. So let let just explore a little bit. If if you're um, if someone's just picking up your milk, like who are those players? Like how do, how does that work for a farmer who's kind of selling their milk on, on that type of a market? So for the purpose of this show, I'll say that those are uh, conventional dairy farmers that are selling their milk wholesale, getting receiving a wholesale price. So um, farmers will produce milk. It'll go into a bulk tank, and then um, a tractor-trailer truck will come pick up their milk, and then they will take it to a milk plant. And most often, dairy farmers are a member of a milk co-op. Um, that milk co-op then helps distribute the milk, try to figure out where it needs to go. Does it need to go to uh, this plant or does it need to go to a different plant? Who needs milk in those processing facilities that day? But that's all the responsibility of the milk co-op, and that farmer can then know that he's going to get paid a certain price, Mm -hmm. and he can go back to his day-to-day business and operations. Okay. So um, a lot less uh, risk, a lot less uh, extra effort on behalf of the farmer, but... In many cases, the price is a lot lower. Um, the other situation is where farmers are, have decided to process and market their milk themselves. So we just got done talking about how farmers are so many things on the farm. You know, they're, they're growing crops, they're milking cows, they're feeding cows, they are doing their books, they're following regulations, all of these things. These farmers that are going above and beyond to process and market their milk are taking on these additional responsibilities. But to be rewarded, they also get to set their own price. And so in some instances, this is a very positive um, uh, situation for those farmers. Uh, But it takes a special kind of farmer. Sometimes I, I pick on my dad because my dad tends to like to stay home and milk the cows. Right. And he is so happy doing that. He he just thinks that's the greatest thing. Me, I would have gotten a little bored with that because there is nobody there to talk to except for a <laughs> hundred brown-eyed bovines. Um, he thinks that's great. He would not necessarily be ideal for marketing his own product because, as you and I both know from being in the city, you need to be able to talk to the consumer. You need to be ex- be able to explain your product, and that's just not his gig. Um, and so it does take a special kind of individual that can farm and grow crops and milk cows and do all of that, as well as follow the sanitation guidelines, put, put a product through a processing plant, and also put a nice label on it and communicate the values of your end product. So what are you seeing, I mean, as far as, as uh, you know, growth in the dairy industry or new opportunities? I mean, how, how are farmers kind of taking advantage of that? Are there new products that are kind of exploding right now? Are there particular types of processing, like models that are working? And, and how sure. are farmers kind of gaining access to those things or those ideas? Yeah, 10 years ago in New York State, we had about 87 processing facilities in the state. Today, we have uh, 120 of those. So we have been growing in uh, our dairy processing sector which is pretty exciting. And a lot of those are smaller-scale processing uh, 
um, entities. Those are places like uh, Baton Kill Valley Creamery that I believe that you guys talked to not too long ago, um, a dairy farm that decided to start bottling their own milk, and now I believe they're also making ice cream, and so taking control of, of their uh, end product a little bit and adding value to that and marketing it themselves. Um, that certainly is one avenue that we are seeing um, become more and more popular. We've also seen uh, several milk delivery routes. Um, oh, really? Uh, like the milk startup? Brand. Yeah. In, in startup in upstate New York, and uh, those are farmers that have decided to to transport their product right to the home, like it was done in the old days before probably you were in my time, Erin. Yeah. And. Uh, and, and that has been successful, and it's been a great way to reach out to the consumer and for the consumer to have a greater relationship with their local farmer. Um, we've also seen a growth in the Greek yogurt um, category. Um, this seems to be kind of a new craze in the, in the grocery store. This is done a li- typically on a larger scale. However, I do believe some of our smaller-scale processors are offering a Greek-style yogurt. And this is a thicker, more custard-like yogurt. Um, And one of the exciting things for dairy farmers is that this type of yogurt uses three times the amount of milk in order to produce the end product um, in comparison to regular traditional-styled yogurt. Okay, so do your part, New Yorkers. Get out, find some New York State Greek yogurt. Um. (laughs) Excellent. What about, so can you give us some, maybe some figures on, on, you know, the dairy industry as far as like what it's doing for the New York state economy? Uh, Sure. Uh, We have about 5,500 New York state dairy farmers. Those are uh, farm families that are are producing milk and they, you know, range in all sizes, but they produce about 12 and a half billion pounds of milk a year. And uh, that milk is valued at roughly, uh, let's say, about $3 billion um, a year for the New York State economy. And that is just what is being paid at the farm. farm. Um, So that doesn't even take into account um, the value of that product after it's being processed, the amount of jobs that is generating in between that, including truck drivers, milk inspectors, uh, processing plant managers, um, the people that are uh, making the cartons or the plastic jugs that milk goes into, um, or the marketing that uh, takes place uh, for dairy products. And so uh, dairy processing actually has one of the highest economic multipliers of any industry in the state. And uh and so, therefore, for every job or for every, for every job that is in a dairy processing facility, it typically will generate uh, four and a half to five more jobs in the local economy. Um, in addition, for every dollar of uh, dairy products that are sold in the local community, um, another dollar and a quarter um, are spent in the local community. So these are real economic multipliers that when we have a strong dairy industry here in New York like we do, um, it really helps um, provide a thriving economy and community uh, surrounding it. Awesome. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Learned a ton about dairy. And I will say to our listeners, you know, get out there. I know at the New York, New York City Farmer's Market, you can find um, great milk from folks like Milk Thistle or Ronnie Brook. If you're in your local grocery store, look for the code 36 that you mentioned earlier. And, and June is dairy month. And June is dairy month. So, so do your part. Eat some Greek yogurt. Eat some ice cream. Tis the season. 
Um, Absolutely. Jess, thanks so much for coming on. I, and I, I want to, um, you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to have you back on and follow up a little bit more as, <laughs> as, as the future progresses in the dairy world. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me on, Erin, and it was great to talk to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, tune in. We'll have Gordon Campbell of the United Way talking about their $2 million USDA grant uh, looking at feeding hungry New Yorkers. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes News with Katie Kiefer. Just this week, I read about um, my one of my favorite television personalities, Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs, who testified in Congress about how disconnected Americans in general have become from the people who produce their food or fix their pipes, make their clothes, etc. Here's what he said. I believe we need a national PR campaign for skilled labor, something that addresses the widening skills gap head on and reconnects the country with the most important part of our workforce. Right now, American manufacturing is struggling to fill 200,000 vacant positions, and there are 450,000 openings in trades, transportation, and utilities. The skills gap is real, and it's getting wider. In Alabama, a third of all skilled tradesmen are over 55. They're retiring fast, and no one is there to replace them. In general, we are surprised that high unemployment can exist at the same time as a skilled labor shortage, but we shouldn't be. We've pretty much guaranteed it. In high schools, the vocational arts have all but vanished. We've elevated the importance of higher education to such a lofty perch that all other forms of knowledge are now labeled alternative. Millions of parents and kids are, see apprenticeships and on-the-job training opportunities as, quote, vocational consolation prizes, best suited for those not cut out for a four-year degree. And still, we talk about millions of shovel-ready jobs for a society that does not encourage people to pick up a shovel. In a hundred different ways, we've slowly marginalized an entire category of critical professions, reshaping our expectations of a good job into something that no longer looks like work. A few years from now, an hour with a good plumber, if you can find one, is going to cost you more than an hour with a good psychiatrist. So check out Mike Rowe Works, that's his website, where he is announcing a broad-based initiative from Discovery Communications called Discover Your Skills. I think he has a lot of interesting points to be made here, and I think everybody would do well to take a look at it. So this is Behind the Scenes News from Katie Kiefer. Thanks for listening. Did you know we have a beer show? Check out a small clip from Beer Sessions Radio. All right, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43, and I'm here with Ray Dieter from the DBA Bars. Hey, Jim. Ray, this is a fun show. We're drinking Belgian beer. We're drinking Ictagum. Hanging out with the guys from 124 Rabbit Club. we got uh, Don and Wendy from Van Berg and the Wolf. Well, let's go back a little bit to, to kind of build your pedigree. So the two of, the, two of your top brands that we... Love and that you have now, Scaldis and Saison Dupont. Yeah, exactly. Tell us uh, h- how you met those guys, how you started working with them. Well, Saison Dupont was really that. Was if you want to hear more, head over to heritageradionetwork.com where new episodes of Beer Sessions are posted every week in our archive. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and iTunes.
The following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. In the next few weeks, Heritage Foods USA will be offering an interesting variety of amazing products, ranging from top quality seafood to their famous pork cuts. At the end of May, the Heritage team will go up to Maine to harvest fresh lobster with sustainable lobster meat. These delicious lobster are a perfect way to kick off the summer season. In the pork department, Heritage Foods USA will offer the maple-cured smoked boneless heritage ham at an unbeatable price. This offer won't last long, so get them while you can. Place your order today at heritagefoodsusa.com or call 718-389-0985. That's 718-389-0985 to place your order with Andrea or Ashley. And don't forget to sign up for the email list and to check them on Facebook and Twitter to get in on their new products, deals, and offers from Heritage Foods USA.